Heavenly Father, as we open our Bibles this morning, as we long to meet with you through the words that you have spoken to us, prepare our hearts. Jesus, just as you humbled yourself and became one of us. Once again, I ask you to humble yourself, Father, and through your Spirit, visit us this morning. Speak to us. Teach us. Make us more sensitive to the leading, the guiding of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We know that we are being built into a habitation of God, that within us, in an amazing and beyond understanding way, the fullness of the Godhead lives within us. Just incredible. The intimacy, the personal close relationship that we can have with you. Deepen that this morning. Please, Speak through me to put yourself on display, to edify your body, empower me with the gift you've given me to be used for your glory. So enlighten the eyes of our heart. Give us that deep understanding. And may it be this morning, not me who is speaking, but you. May it be as if the very words of God are flowing out of my mouth. I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm excited about our new sermon series entitled God's Chosen Fast. It is a, uh, how do I want to put it, the title of this sermon, for example, there's a book by Arthur Wallace called God's Chosen Fast, one of the many books that I am researching along with other commentaries in the Bible about this idea of fasting, because I wanted to begin our series on fasting. If you may recall, we had done a sermon series called The School of Prayer, interrupted only by the three-part series on the resurrection. And logically, prayer is to be accompanied with fasting. And so I wanted us as a church to begin to be not only, rather continue to be a church that prays, but also a church that embraces fasting. And so I'm excited about this new series, not sure how long it's going to go, but this sermon in particular is more of a general introduction. It's called God's Chosen Fast, just Fasting 101, and it was very, very educational for me. And so I'm excited to teach you what I've learned uh, this week in preparing it. I want to begin, though, with a story taken out of a book called A Hunger for God by John Piper about Carl Lundquist. Uh, he was the president of Bethel College and Seminary for almost 30 years. Uh, he died in 1991 from skin cancer. But in the last decade of his life, he devoted a lot of his time and energy and resources uh, to studying and promoting a personal spiritual devotion and the disciplines of the Christian 
life. He even established uh, what he called the evangelical order of the burning heart. He began to send out a letter of inspiration and encouragement with this letter. And in September of 1989, roughly 30 years ago, in a letter, he told the story of how he first began to take fasting seriously. Now, I want to put that in context because this is important for our, this message in this entire series, is that this man had been a president of Bethel College and Seminary for almost 30 years. In two years before his death, he's writing a story of how he began to take fasting seriously. So for the majority of his Christian life, as you'll find out, he had not taken fasting seriously. And there's a reason for that. And I want to kind of dive into that a little bit this morning. But this is what he wrote in that letter. See, he says this, My own serious consideration of fasting as a spiritual discipline began as a result of visiting Dr. Jun Gon Kim in Seoul, Korea. Is it true, I ask him, that you spent 40 days in fasting prior to the Evangelism Crusade in 1980? Yes, he responded, it is true. Dr. Kim was chairman of the crusade, expected to bring a million people to Yoido Plaza. But six months before the meeting, the police informed him they were revoking their permission for the crusade. Korea at that time was in a political turmoil, and Seoul was under martial law. The officers decided that they could not take the risk of having so many people together in one place. So Dr. Kim and some associates went to a prayer mountain and there spent 40 days before God in prayer and fasting for the crusade. Then they returned and made their way to the police station. Oh, said the officer when he saw Dr. Kim, we have changed our mind and you can have your meeting. Dr. Lundquist goes on to write, as I went back to the hotel, I reflected that I had never fasted like that. Perhaps I had never desired a work of God with the same intensity. His body, Dr. Kim, is marked by many 40-day fasts during his long spiritual leadership of God's work in Asia. Also, however, Dr. Lundquist was forced to admit I haven't seen the miracles that Dr. Kim has. Dr. Lundquist reflected that he had never fasted like that. Let me suggest a reason why. In his classic 1968 book, God's Chosen Fast, by Dr. Arthur Wallace that I mentioned earlier, he writes this. In a large city... I inquired of all the Christian literature bookshops for some publications on the subject of fasting. This is 1968, Arthur Wallace. So he goes to all these Christian bookstores to find information about fasting. They could not suggest a single title. A few days afterwards, in a health food store in the same city, I picked up a book on health fasting, I soon discovered that there was far more being written on the physical aspect of this subject 
by food reformists than on the spiritual aspect by Christian writers. If you go forward almost 30 years to 1994, when God called Dr. Bill Bright of Campus Crusade for Christ, or formerly Campus Crusade for Christ, now called Crew, to a 40-day fast. As you can imagine, Dr. Bright was somewhat hesitant. How does one fast for such a long period of time? He writes in his book, The Coming Revival, America's Call to Fast, Pray, and Seek God's Face. He says, for several weeks before I'd begun my fast, I had sought information from medical doctors and Christian leaders to prepare myself. My search was fruitless, he writes. I found only two people who had fasted 40 days. Can you take a guess who one of the people was, one of the people that he found? Dr. Jun Goon Kim. I couldn't even find any material on how to conduct such an extended fast. On a personal, I, myself, have received extensive training over the years in spiritual disciplines such as Bible study, prayer, solitude, silence, fellowship, giving. I've I've taught on that. Uh, Discipleship and discipleship methods. Certainly a lot of evangelism and apologetic training. I have invested my own personal resources in the study of Christian theology, Leadership development, I spent three days at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in intensive on, on sermon preparation and practicing sermons to groups of people. And that's just to name a few of the things that I myself have invested time in. But in preparation for this sermon, I began to think and realize that I have never, in almost 30 years of ministry, I have never received any training about fasting. So I asked myself, and I asked us, why is this so? Well, the reality is is that fasting has been out of vogue, if you want to use that word, for hundreds of years. Maybe your reaction to some of the stories I just mentioned was similar to this. The very idea of someone actually fasting today, it kind of seems strange, doesn't it? Historians believe that despite the clear teaching in the Bible on fasting and its regular practice in the early church, that fasting sort of fell out of favor within Christendom because of its association with asceticism. Now, let me define what I mean by asceticism. It's not a word that we really are too familiar with in today's culture, but typically for religious reasons, asceticism is the severe self-discipline and avoidance of all forms of indulgence. Now, we may call it by something else, like delaying gratification or waiting, some sort of denying yourself, But fasting became associated with severe asceticism. In fact, it became very extreme in the age after the apostles. 
extreme in both practice and in its influence up to the medieval times. Now, you can figure out what would happen for something like this. It was only a matter of time before the, the pendulum swung back the other way and people revolted against anything resembling asceticism, which included all of its practices, which thrown in that was fasting. And to this day, the church still suffers from this reaction. We do not only not practice this severe restriction, we're the other way. We are a very tolerant, open to everything society. But the baby got thrown with the bathwater, with asceticism, and with fasting in the church. So I want to begin just kind of this introductory sermon on fasting by asking some questions. For example, what is fasting? Now you might think, okay, well, why do we need to define it? Well, because it's been diluted over the years. A lot of us have come to the understanding that fasting can mean this. I want to read this to you. To fast is not simply to abstain from food, but from anything that hinders our communion with God. If you were here this morning and I were to ask you to raise your hand, you would probably say that I have heard of that definition of fasting. It's not just restricted to food now. It's anything you can fast from. But in its simplest form and in its biblical form, what is fasting? What I want to talk about really is what I call a normal fast. Three types of fasts that the Bible talks about. Fasting simply means not to eat. You stop eating food. In Matthew 4, 1 and 2, I'm going to have a lot of verses for you to, to just listen to because there are too many to put up on a PowerPoint presentation. But this is our Lord. Right after he has been baptized by the Holy Spirit, this is what we read. He was then led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights... He was hungry. We read the same account in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, he returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. So fasting, or a normal fast, is abstaining from all food, whether it be solid or liquid, now watch this though, but not from water. If you look at both texts in Matthew 4 and Luke chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, they do not say that Jesus didn't drink, only that he ate nothing. They say that he was hungry. It doesn't say that he wasn't thirsty. And look at the temptation, though. We know that the temptation of Satan to Jesus was what? To drink or to eat? It was to eat. It was not to drink clearly suggesting or implying that Jesus was abstaining only from food. Now, we know that apart from a supernatural sustaining, the human body cannot go without water for 40 days. That's in its simplest form what I would call a normal fast. It's abstaining from food in all its forms. Now, the Bible also teaches what some would call a absolute fast. Now, Ezra, in the Bible, in Ezra chapter 10, verse 6, was overcome by the faithlessness 
of the exiles and was led to a fast. In Ezra 10, 6, it says this, Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehonan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night, neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. This would be what we call an absolute fast, an abstaining from food and water. Now, what I want you to notice here in this passage, which is something that, that struck me, because you see it also in the life of Daniel, Ezra was fasting. He was denying himself food and water, not because of sin in his own life, but because of sin with his people the faithlessness of the exiles. Daniel fasted and confessed the sins of his people, not his own sins. And you'll notice in the Bible, I believe you see a pattern of God's people who are so in love with their God that they cannot stand the, I'll call it the lukewarmness within their nation. For us, it means the lukewarmness or the faithlessness or the standard of living, perhaps, that you see in the church. I mean, does it bother you, for example, that the divorce rate for Christians is roughly the same as that of unbelievers? How are we different than the world? And if we're not, does it bother you? Does it bother you enough with all forms of, of immorality, whether it be, you know, or sin. I mean, Christians are, are sleeping together outside of marriage or before marriage at roughly the same rate as non-Christians. Does that bother you? Does it bother you to the point where you are, will mourn, that you will fast, go without food and water? But we see that here as what is an, it's so extreme, it's an absolute fast. You deny yourself food and water. Uh, when the entire Jewish race was threatened with an extermination, Queen Esther called for a fast. In Esther 4.16, she says this, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. In the New Testament, when Saul of Tarsus, obviously who became the apostle Paul, when he had his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, he fasted. In Acts 9, verse 9, it says, For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, what I want you to notice is we have a God who is a creator. He created us. So he knows, as we all now know, I think, that the human body can go without food for some time, but it cannot go without water. Three days without water, your body starts to begin to break down, you begin hallucinating, and so on. The scriptures clearly recognize this. But an absolute fast is no food and no water for a period of probably no longer than three days apart from some supernatural sustaining. But there are events in people's lives that required or they felt led to, or the result was of this event, an absolute fast. 
Clearly, you can see that in some of these cases, it's a crisis event that is triggering this fast. Finally, there's what we call a partial fast. You find this in Daniel chapter 10, verse 3, a very popular fast. It's called the Daniel fast, I believe, in the church today. But in Daniel chapter 10, verses 1 through 3, it says, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true. And it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth. In other words, he was given this great revelation and he wanted to understand it. Now, this is not a crisis event. He just simply wanted to understand the nature of this vision, this dream that God had given him. And so for three weeks, he went on a restricted diet. And that's what a partial fast is. It emphasizes diet restriction rather than completely abstaining from food. So that's biblically what I would call just kind of the three biblical fasts, a normal fast, an absolute fast, and a partial fast. But again, what I want you to see as well with these people There's a real intensity, a real pursuit of God that is associated with fasting. He is what they desire. So that fasting for them is something that they they almost gladly do to get more of God or to get more understanding from Him. Let's kind of get into the nuts and bolts of fasting, what I call Fasting 101, which is the title of this sermon. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 16, these are the words of our Lord. He says this, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. They disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Now, in this context, Jesus is speaking about the religious practices of the Jews of his day. He's going to show them how it is inadequate. And in this case, he's going to talk about giving, praying, and fasting. Now, what you notice, he, he did not say, if you give... Or if you pray, and of course, or if you fast. So for example, he says, if you give, which he didn't say, as though giving were an option. We know that giving is not an option. Same thing with praying. We know that praying is not an option. What our Lord says is that when you give, when you pray, he's just taking for granted that the people would recognize that this is something that was vital. Giving is vital to the church. Prayer is vital to your relationship with God. They're gifts, rather, given to us. And the same thing with fasting. Jesus didn't say if you fast, but when you fast. As though fasting were something that disciples might or might not be led to do, or as though, as it is today, that only a selected few people regularly fast. No. Our Lord says unambiguously, categorically and without qualification. To the mass of his disciples, that means to you and me, when you fast. He left us in no doubt that he took it for granted that his disciples would indeed fast. We would obey the leading of the Spirit in our lives, as in praying and as in giving. 
We would fast when the occasion demanded it, as we felt led. Now, the question that is on everyone's mind when it comes to fasting, you hear this a lot, is this. Are we commanded to fast? Well, in the Old Testament, the Jews were only commanded to fast on one day out of the year, the Day of Atonement. In Leviticus 23, verses 26 and 27, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now on the tenth day of this seventh month is the Day of Atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. To afflict yourself means to humble yourself. You humble yourself in sackcloth and ashes and in fasting, in abstaining from food. They were to reflect on what was going on in the Day of Atonement for their sin, which is a very healthy thing from a spiritual perspective for a person, for a believer, to do. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus made that once-for-all sacrifice. You can read that in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. This happened on the cross. And so this one, the singular prescribed occasion for fasting has ceased to exist because its needs were met in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. But what we see in the Bible, in the Old and the New Testament, is that people still fast. Now, for example, fasting is appropriate during times of sorrow. When God caused the first child of David and Bathsheba to fall ill and eventually die, David fasted while he pleaded for the infant's life. You may recall that David had committed the sin of adultery with Bathsheba. A child was born to them. And for his sin, the punishment was that the child would die. In 2 Samuel 12, verse 15 and 16, by the way, this gives you a good picture of the close relationship that David had with God, how he really knew him to be a very compassionate, merciful God. This is what David does. It says, The Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. The scripture is going to say that he thought that perhaps he could change the mind of God, because he knows God to be very compassionate and merciful and forgiving. He didn't, the child died, but David fasted in a time of sorrow. David, and I would, before I begin this next point here, do you want to know why David was a man after God's own heart? The scriptures give him that singular title. He was a man after God's own heart. It doesn't say that about anybody else in the Bible. There were a lot of people that were close to God. But David is described as a man after my own heart, God says. Well, why is that the case? Spend time this week meditating on Psalm 35. You'll find out why. This is so countercultural. But just listen to this. To anybody that's been offended, which is all of us, David even fasted on behalf of his enemies. In Psalm 35, 13, and 14, we'll just look at verse 13. It says this, when they were sick, meaning his enemies. These are people that are causing him great pain and suffering. When they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting, and my prayer kept returning to my bosom. Just think about that. 
You want to guard your heart when you've been offended? You want to learn to love as Jesus loved, as God loves? Perhaps when you get offended, go into a fast for that, that person. One of the ways we know that we prove that we are children of God is by praying for our enemies. And yet the first reaction, which is normal because we're a, a radically corrupt people, is when we get offended, we react in anger. That's not David. We know that this was probably Saul who was pursuing him to take his life and caused him great pain and suffering. And yet we know that he even fasted and I think even prayed for, for his enemy, Saul. So David even fasted on behalf of his enemies. We see lots of different reasons why we fast. Uh, overcoming danger often prompted fasting. King Jehoshaphat proclaimed a national fast in Judah when they were threatened with attack from the Moabites and Ammonites. In 2 Chronicles 21 through 3, they're surrounded uh, by their enemies. And Jehoshaphat, verse 3, was afraid. And he set his face to seek the Lord. And this is how he sought the Lord, which is a way to seek the Lord, by the way. He proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah. A confession and repentance of sin often accompany fasting. When the people of Nineveh heard Jonah's preaching, they were so convicted that they believed in God and called a fast in Jonah 3.5. People believed God, they called for a fast and put on sackcloth. From the grace of them to the least of them. Do you remember the story? They even put like sackcloth over their livestock. And God relented and was merciful to the people of Nineveh. Fasting often accompanied the beginning of an important task or ministry. And I found this particularly convicting myself. It says in Luke 4, 1 through 2, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. In Luke 4, verses 14 and 15, just a few verses later, it says, He returned after the fast in the power of the Spirit in Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. We need to pause and think about those verses. Before our Lord, the very Son of God himself, before his ministry, what did the Father instruct the Spirit to do in his leading of his Son? He went on a 40-day fast. Now, if our Lord must fast for his ministry... How much more must we fast in our lives and in our ministries? Paul and Barnabas, they ministered God's word when they prayed and fasted as they appointed elders in the churches they founded. In Acts 14.23, when they appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This is incredibly Convicting folks. I know a number of you have been through a pastoral search. How did the early church choose leaders, their pastors? Well, look at this. Right here, we have an answer. 
They did not choose. They didn't send out their leaders. They didn't select their pastors, their elders, their deacons by a popular vote. Where is the congregational vote in this process? No. Joy Church, above all, they sought and followed God's will through prayer and fasting. And sadly, it has been my experience in the leadership of churches that the use of fasting, and I have to include myself in this, in the choosing of leaders in the church is not only it seems to be forgotten, but it is even taught that it is not relevant today. Dr. Jack Deere shares the story of how fasting, it runs contrary to the theology of, of some. He says this, I once heard a theological professor give a lecture on fasting to a room full of mostly other professors. He concluded that fasting was only a last resort in times of great crisis. The implication was that fasting outside times of crisis was an unbiblical and unprofitable practice. None of the academics in the room questioned his conclusion. The only one to do so was a pastor who hadn't had the benefit of a seminary education, but who fasted regularly. However, he was no match for the more theologically sophisticated in the room. So to the majority's great relief, the conclusion that fasting was simply not a relevant part of the normal Christian experience was allowed to stand. Now I wonder what this professor and the other academics in that room would say to these saints in past history who practiced regular fasting. You'll recognize their names. Some of the great saints of church history, according to Arthur Wallace, have practiced fasting and testified to its value. Among them, the great reformers, such as Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, the custom has not been confined to any theological school. You have Jonathan Edwards, a Reformed theologian, a Calvinist. He would join hands with John Wesley, an Arminian. David Brainerd having fellowship with Charles Finney. Now these names represent great scholars and preachers, ministers and missionaries, revivalists and evangelists. Time would fail us to mention the growing number whom God is raising up and using in the same ministry today through prayer and fasting. The doings of the great can scarcely be hidden. They are barely cold in their graves before their biographers are ferreting out their journals and private diaries. But only the opening of heaven's records, I like this, in that final day will reveal the number of anonymous saints who had no diaries, no biographies, but who prayed with fasting to the God who sees in secret. You know, fasting is not just limited to great times of crisis. Remember that Anna, 
remember her, the, the great prophetess that was waiting for Jesus to be born, was in the temple. She spent her days and nights, her whole life, it seemed like, praying and fasting. And finally, the fasting is always linked with a pure heart. And it must be associated with godly living. In Zechariah chapter 7, verses 4 and 5, verses 9 and 10, just listen to this. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh, for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? Thus says the Lord of hosts, in verse, jumping up to verse 9, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. Let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. Now think about that verse. Seventy years of fasting in the fifth month, in the seventh month. It meant nothing to the Lord because it was done insincerely. Like the hypocritical Pharisees that Jesus would later condemn, those Israelites lived only for themselves. And on a personal note, as I close this morning, I have fasted in my life, perhaps not as much as I should have, but I was introduced to the idea of God speaking to me through dreams, through fasting. You may recall the story, I won't go into great detail of it, but when I was working with Camp Crusade for Christ, one of the ways that we raised funds, because we were supported as missionaries, was through a, a, a gift, that, a letter we would send out to special gifts that could be given to us through our supporters for large purchases. The IRS allowed that. And so typically a staff member would send out a letter explaining the need for, a, in this case for us it was a vehicle, because our family was growing, we had one vehicle and it wasn't enough. We didn't make enough money to, to buy another vehicle, we were missionaries. So typically a staff member would send out a letter and see anywhere between five to $10,000 come in for a vehicle. And I had very faithful supporters, but they never really seemed to give a lot for these special needs. And so as I sent out the letter, I spent five days in prayer and in fasting. Now the results of the letter came back over a period of a, of a month or so. We saw roughly about $1,200 come in, and that money was already set aside to be spent for some Christian theology training. So basically, we had no money. But I remember during the five-day fast, when I was in a heightened state of spiritual awareness, that God spoke to me in a dream. He reminded me that I had a dream about a week or two earlier where God had revealed he was going to provide us with a green Toyota 4Runner, and that's exactly what happened. But I was not made aware of that dream. I'd never even considered God speaking to me in dreams. That was completely odd and weird to me. It kind of freaked me out. But God introduced me to the world of dreams and visions, kind of like what you read about in the Bible, through a fast. It's been a very reliable way that God speaks to me from that point on. And it came as a result, again, of spending five days in prayer and fasting in this heightened state of spiritual sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. And so that's kind of a general overview of what I call Fasting 101, 
as we start off this series called God's Chosen Fast. And what I'd like you to do, and kind of the point that I came up with, as you see in this sermon, is I want you to rethink fasting. I will send out this afternoon this sermon in the Bible study notes so you can prepare for our Wednesday night Zoom Bible study meeting, 7 o'clock on Wednesday nights. I'll send all that out today. But I want you to rethink fasting. If you were here this morning, I would ask you to raise your hands. And have you ever heard a sermon on fasting, or much less a series on fasting? Have you been trained specifically how to fast? Because I know you've been trained in how to pray, and I know you've heard sermons on giving. But we don't talk, much less practice, fasting. And yes, fasting is for us today. It is relative and it is effective in our spiritual lives. Let's pray. Father, as we close this morning, I want to thank you for your word to us. I ask for your empowerment and your guidance, Holy Spirit, to change my thinking and the thinking of, of those in this church and those who are watching about fasting. May we become a people who pray and fast. We humble ourselves. We afflict our souls, as the scriptures say, with fasting and with prayer. Help us to draw upon the resources of heaven through fasting and prayer. Teach us to be more like you and use this time to create a hunger in us for you because we don't live by bread alone, but in every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Father, I pray for, us for your protection and your provision during this global pandemic. I thank you for how you have protected and provided in the past. I trust you'll continue to do that to your children. Draw us to you, creating us a hunger for you, and teach us your ways, forming us and our character into the more perfect image of Jesus Christ. And may you use this sermon series to bring glory to yourself and to your son in the church and in Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.